CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks to all of you for joining us for Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, You know, you would think that given that the Democratic candidates for president have now blown in and blown out of town again, maybe those of us who work in politics, either as journalists or in the business of politics, would have a relaxed, easy week on tap. Jim Galloway, lead writer, political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, whose column appears on Wednesdays and Sundays in the AJC, that appears not to be the case because we're all talking about what the heck is going on with Senate seat number two, the open Johnny Isaacson seat. There is no rest for us wicked, is there? (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk a lot more about that as we move forward on today's show. Also here in the studio with us is uh, GPB Radio's political reporter, Stephen Fowler. Stephen, you were... We'll talk later in the show a little bit about your running around uh, talking to presidential candidates, seeing the presidential candidates out there. So you had a really busy week last week, too. I finally rediscovered what sleep is about uh, <laughs> yesterday afternoon. <laughs> oh, congratulations to you. And we welcome today in the studio um, a new panelist on the show, Joel Alvarado. Joel, you are uh, you work with Howard Franklin, a frequent panelist on the show in uh, Ohio River South, which is your consulting business. Yes, it is. Government relations, political campaigns, and the like. You have a really interesting background. I mean, you've been doing this work for a long time. And because you're on for the first time today, I'm going to expand on it just a little bit. Um, You went to Morehouse. I did, sir. Undergraduate work. You're now working on a PhD. I am. In... In higher education administration, my ultimate goal is to become a college president. Wow. And so I knew I had to get that uh, terminal degree in order to be able to do so. Wow. All right. In the meantime, you have also done an enormous amount of civil rights work. You work with MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund, correct? Absolutely. Very proud of that work I did with them. Uh, But you've also uh, worked in the African-American civil rights community as well. With the NAACP, excuse me. Yes, I was over civic engagement in the state of Georgia in 2018 midterm. So we played a major role in the shift that occurred in the House and in the Senate to some extent in the metro Atlanta area regarding getting Democrats in certain seats. All right. Consider yourself introduced, uh, Mr. (laughs) Alvarado. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And we welcome back to our uh, show from the studios of WDUN Radio in Gainesville, our good friend Martha Zoller, who hosts the morning show up that way. But, of course, Martha has been on both sides. She's worked as a talk show host, a radio political show host, as well as in uh, uh, government offices. She worked with David Perdue. She uh, was in the uh, uh, Brian Kemp administration uh, for a, a, a while. We're glad to have you with us, Martha. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be back. Well, uh, you also, we should say, are one of the people who put uh, her hat in the ring. You applied for the Senate seat, the open Senate seat, and I'll be interested in hearing as we move forward what you have to say about that. And uh, but let's start it by by talking about that, Jim. Well, let me start with you. The the big story, obviously, which broke late last week, but which has shown no sign of abating in intensity, is the way in which Doug Collins began a hard, tough pressure campaign to get Brian Kemp to appoint him to the seat. And it wasn't just, I mean, President Trump himself saying he wanted him was enough. But the conservative talk show host, Hugh Hewitt, uh, is promoting Doug Collins. You have other members, Republican conference in the House pushing for Doug Collins. That campaign has been intense ever since uh, it first started. Yeah, and you've had uh, Breitbart.com weigh in on it uh, with some fairly uh, flammable uh, allegations against uh, Kelly Loeffler. She is the the multimillionaire uh, finance executive. Uh, co-owner of the WNBA's uh, Atlanta Dream, that that kind of helped her. It was it was her application at, at the last minute that kind of set this off. Yeah, we should say, Stephen, that we mentioned Kelly Leffler early in the show because it is generally believed 
that she is the candidate who the governor has wanted all along to take Johnny Isaacson's seat. She is a, a businesswoman who's had enormous success on her own. She's married to Jeff Sprecher, whose company owns the New York Stock Exchange and international exchanges as well. And uh, there's many people who believe that she's the person that Kemp has wanted to put in that job. Well, if you look at the short list or kind of the final people that put their names in right before the time was set to close, uh, you kind of get a mindset into what the governor's looking for. I interviewed him last month in South Georgia. He said he's looking at some unconventional candidates, somebody who can represent Georgia, um, Georgia interests and business and things like that. And so she kind of fits the bill. And she wouldn't necessarily apply last minute if she didn't have some degree of certainty about her future for the next, say, year or so yeah. running for Senate. All right. Perhaps. So, Martha, let me uh, loop you in, uh, given that you uh, put your name into the application process. Um, give us your thoughts on all this right now. And, and do you believe that your uh, candidacy is uh, probably not, you're not in the final, <laughs> final four, know, say. I, no, I'm not in the final four. I didn't make uh, the BCS playoff. But, um, uh, you know, it's, I think that, first of all, one of the best days was when the New York Magazine said I was a viable long shot. Okay, yeah. and then, then it went downhill from there. But that's wait, okay. Wait, wait, before you say another <laughs> word, I want to say, Jim, this is maybe the only time we'll ever hear Martha Zoller talk up what most people would generally concede to be a liberal New York publication. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh, and, and, and and before we before we let her let her continue, let's put, let's throw some context. Martha is probably uh, the 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 most uh, geographically and politically. Uh, Connected person Absolutely. in this whole discussion. Absolutely. She, 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 you, you live in. You still live in Gainesville or outside it? Yes. Okay. And and that's where Doug Collins and Nathan Deal and Casey Cagle are are from. Uh, you worked for David Perdue uh, for a while. And uh, and and he is very much impacted by this decision because he's going to be on the ballot next year too. And you worked for Brian Kemp. Correct. All, I, that is all correct. So, so, <laughs> so, so, what, what, what inside skinny have you got on this? Well, I have to tell you, first of all, a lot of the things they're throwing at Kelly Loeffler are interesting because they say, "Oh, she helped Mitt Romney." Well, right. we all helped Mitt Romney in 2012. We all helped John McCain in 2008. You know, those kinds of things are just what people are digging up. And I've been getting the text messages, as I'm sure you have too, Jim, from grassroots type people who the minute Kelly Loeffler put her name in there, I will tell you the advice I gave the governor is that we needed to have a woman in this position, you know, and I gave him several names of which Kelly was one of them, but there were other women that had put their names in there. And I jokingly said, if you're not going to pick me, then you need these are the women you need to consider. So um, I think it's important that um, we have a diverse top of the ticket. And when I say we, I mean Republicans. It's no secret that I'm a Republican. And I think it's bad for us that we're having this fight now. People are taking sides now before the decision has even been made. Um, go, oh, go ahead. Finish no, your No, that's thought. fine. No, that's fine. We got, I got a lot more to say, but we'll, we'll, <laughs> okay. we'll make it more of a conversation. <laughs> Good. Thank you, Martha. Joel, uh, Breitbart did do a real takedown of Kelly Loeffler, I suppose, n not surprising that you know they're they're f staunch defenders of President Trump. They've seen Doug Collins be a vociferous supporter of the president's as well. Mm -hmm. But still, uh, they have an interview with uh, Debbie Dooley, uh, the Georgia conservative, mm -hmm. former Tea Party activist, who calls her a country club Republican. And Breitbart News picked up that phrase and used it mm -hmm. in their headline. Uh, they complain about the fact that Dooley did give money to Mitt Romney, who, you know, the curse is that he was a moderate Republican in 2012. They, uh, they're, it, they're bothered by the fact that he's a co-owner of a WNBA team. Uh, she, that puts her in league with, uh, the, with the WNBA, which... Uh, gave money to half a dozen nonprofit organizations, one of which mm -hmm. was uh, uh, Planned Parenthood. But um, but the reality is, Loeffler had. If you look at her financial giving, she's given hundreds of thousands of dollars to conservatives, including President Trump. Right. Well, I would say this: it's really a determination of the future of the Republican Party. Where Where do you want to go? There it seems like there's there's two clear camps. Right. There's the Trump camp. 
and which Colin seems to be the the vanguard for that uh, for that. For, and then there's also what I think Kemp is trying to hold on to the former maybe fiscal conservative camp. If you look at a lot of his appointments, they've been very diverse. I think he's doing a lot of out of the box thinking, trying to expand the Republican tent. And I really appreciate him for that. As a Democrat, I appreciate diversity all the time. But I would say that it's this is this is a war that's coming out into the public between it's a serious divide within the Republican camp. And it's it's happening in Georgia. And I think that this Republicans should be really concerned because they need to really figure out who they want to be moving forward from 2020 and beyond. And I think whoever comes out on top in this, in, it's almost like a de facto primary between two Republicans, yeah. right? So let me, let me before I uh, get everybody back in the conversation, let me play a little sound for you. I interviewed David Perdue uh, in the middle of last week and, among many other things, talked to him about this very question about who he thought— uh, President, uh, sorry, uh, Governor Kemp should uh, uh, choose for this job. Should he go with a t- traditional white male like a Doug Collins? Should he look for diversity? Here's what uh, uh, Senator Perdue said to me about that. And look, the great news about this whole process is is how deep the Republican bench is of partic- potential public servants who have um, you know the right heart for for doing what what they want to do for Georgia. And so, yes, I mean, you've got several avenues to go. Uh, you can break a gender gap or, or you can break a, a, a racial ba- a barrier. You can, uh, uh, you know, we've got sitting congressmen up here who are candidates. I mean, we've got a long list of qualified candidates. Here's the bottom line. Whoever the governor picks will be my running mate. Really important comment, Jim Galloway. Whoever the governor picks will be his running mate. And it was interesting that Purdue was so open to suggesting that it might be a good idea to have a woman or an African American, right? Well, and 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 there was there was an unspoken uh, continuation right there. And he, yes, he's going to be Purdue's running mate in 2020, but he will be the the, the choice will be Brian Kemp's running mate in 2022. And, so it's got a twofer. And Jim, and and Jim, I want to add to that. This is really important, and I and I agree with with all the things that have been said. This is important for not only the Republican Party, but for Georgia. Okay, and right now, Brian Kemp is running about twenty five points ahead in the favorability rating than President Trump is. I'm a huge supporter of President Trump, but Brian Kemp is doing very well in the favorability area since he's become governor. It is a lot more important for Brian Kemp to do what is right for Georgia than it is to do what is right necessarily or what President Trump necessarily wants him to do. And and I'm not even 100% sure that that's all accurate, with all due respect to you, Jim, about how far he's pressing for that, because I know your sources are fantastic. But, um, but I think this is about Georgia, and I think we cannot discount how well Brian Kemp is doing right now in the favorability area. Let me ask you some, uh, Joel. Uh, yes, if, sir. Let it, let, let, let's presume if, if, if uh, Kemp uh, goes the, the way we think he's headed and chooses Kelly Loeffler, how does that affect who Democrats line up behind uh, in, in the race? I think that is an excellent question because I think what it was alluded to before by Bill, if you go to the traditional white male, it's easy to create an, a counter narrative by the Democratic Party regarding the status quo pick and build and, and build opposition to that. But if you get somebody like a Miss Loeffler who has good creden- Republican credentials, but she's also been really good on social issues and she has stand strong with the WNBA on, on a very social justice issues. Right. So you can't automatically pigeonhole her and create some sort of standard. This is a this is one of those types of Republicans. You have to have nuance. You have to have you have to be careful in how you label her. And also, I think it leads to who the party may decide to support, because if you put somebody who's a white female, that does that help in, in the narrative in trying to find somebody who can defeat defeat her or do you want to go and find somebody maybe an african-american who can who can possibly right be right better so, so if speak. so if it's if it's loveler do you go to michael thurman or do you go to jen jordan yeah interesting that, question yeah. or maybe Raphael warnock yeah right. maybe mm-hmm. Raphael warnock mm-hmm. who has expressed i think he's sort of thinking maybe this might not be a bad thing for him to do uh steven uh, as you well know, last week, it, as he stepped up the pressure to be named to this position, Doug Collins did the Hugh Hewitt show, Hugh Hewitt being a conservative uh, talk show host. And uh, there was one interesting moment 
This was the last week. I don't know, we don't know, any of us, if things have changed since then. But here's a question that Hugh Hewitt asked Collins, and his answer is interesting. And, and Congressman Collins, have you had this conversation with Governor Kemp about why, no matter how many great candidates there are in Georgia, there's only one who's been ranking member on judiciary who can go and serve this post in the Senate the way it needs to be served? Well, at this time, I would assume that the governor will get with me. He's not got with me at this point, so we'll see if he chooses to. Wow. He hasn't talked to me yet. Now, that may have changed, but... Well, you know, I mean, it is the Thanksgiving holiday time. Uh, I have not heard any. I haven't heard anything about a decision coming. A uh, time is running out. You know, uh, Congressman Collins has been busy with this little impeachment thing. Uh, the governor's probably had a lot. You know, he just closed the deadline. But I, I think what you're seeing is kind of what Martha talked about: is that this Senate seat and who's appointed to it is. Uh, kind of this battle between uh, nationalizing the race and localizing the race. You've got two different candidates there that represent two different camps. And I think, you know, this is probably the most important decision Governor Kemp is going to make in his first term or second term, if he even gets one because of this decision. Martha, I think Stephen Fowler just put absolutely the most charitable spin you could possibly want on, oh, Governor Kemp hasn't talked to me yet about this seat. Well, and and the question is now, and we don't know this yet, on whether Congressman Collins has overplayed his hand. Okay, because because he was the original person. He was one of the first people that was talked about as soon as this happened. And and, you know, it is it's a different thing to pick a fight. And that's really what he's doing here. And, um, you know, I did have an opportunity to talk to him at length about legislation on Friday. We didn't talk about the the Senate thing. Uh, that was an that was an agreement that we had. We wouldn't talk about it, uh, but we did talk about legislation and that sort of thing. And there is some concern. You know, you can tell that there's a big issue out there uh, related to this. So the question's going to be, did he overplay his hand? And we won't know that until the decision is made. So Jim, speaking of overplaying your hand, Eric Erickson, uh, the well-known conservative uh, talk show host and writer, uh, believes that's exactly what uh, uh, Doug Collins has done. And he wrote a piece for The Resurgent, his his web publication, saying just that, that by pushing himself and by Trump pushing Collins so hard on Kemp, they have almost guaranteed that Kemp will name Kelly Loeffler because he cannot be seen to be uh, knuckling under pressure from the president, who, Eric Erickson argues, uh, Kemp has been trying to put put some distance uh, between him and right, right, and then then the next question is: Does Doug Collins follow through on his threat? Does he? And because that was that's an, a very very expensive thing to uh, to to try to to overtake a you'd be overtaking a a uh, self funding uh, government uh, go, uh, governor uh, gubernatorially appointed person uh, let me add this too uh, we, you know Kemp obviously campaigned uh, far to the right you know the pickup truck and the shotgun but what's interesting is that he's kind of followed the same lead as as Sonny Perdue as Nathan, as Nathan Deal yeah. and, and as Nathan Deal you know both campaigned to the hard right, but both both Purdue and Nathan Deal and now Brian Kemp are, are recognizing the need to 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 really open up the Republican tent, and they've all three now are getting uh, have been hammered by their base. Well, okay, before we get too far with that, Stephen, I do think there are obviously going to be listeners out there who might agree to some extent with what Jim just said, because Kemp's appointments show that he appreciates diversity, as Joel pointed out earlier. There are certainly going to be people out there who say that the governor's support of HB 481, the bill that virtually outlaws abortion, still keeps him pretty far to the right. I I want to make sure we address that before the tweets start flying. (laughs) Well, you know, the, the interesting thing about the abortion bill that kind of flew under the radar with all of this is that the governor wanted a different bill. Yeah. He wanted what's known as a trigger bill, which would have been if somebody else overturned Roe versus Wade, then all things would be outlawed but, in Georgia. But he gave in to the pressure to support. Well, right. He couldn't the- he couldn't not sign that bill. But it is really interesting uh, that you there's so many different layers of calculus with this decision. And like David Perdue said, you know, this person is my running mate. So you have to view they're two separate Senate seats, but you have to view them as a ticket with the top of that ticket being being President Trump. And so there's kind of a lot of, it's almost like a, 
you know, you can have three things. But th- there are three good things in life, but you can only pick two. And Kemp's trying to maximize that calculus with this decision. Well, and and also the one thing you got to realize about whatever this election looks like next November is that it's probably going to go to a runoff, and the calculus and the risk and potentially splitting a a smaller Republican base than what we've had in two. Does that mean two Democrats could slip through and end up in the runoff? That's that's the risk. Therein lies the risk. Joe, you want to jump in? Yeah, I wanted to say I'm thinking about I don't think this is hyperbole thinking about Kemp's legacy on this. I mean, this is a major decision with national implications. And either way you cut it, he's going to look good to some and bad to others. So he has to do a cost benefit analysis. I had to figure out what what can I get the greatest good out of my decision and minimize the bad because one way or another it's somebody's going to be mad. Yeah, this and that's is leadership. This is, yeah, this absolutely. Is, this is the third paragraph in in whatever summary is written about his gubernatorial yes, career. First term right. in office. What, you are right. Yeah, right. Um, it's going to be interesting to watch how this develops. Uh, you know, I it it Stephen from everything we are hearing. Um, and, and that when I say we, I mean a great pool of journalists who cover politics and political insiders of various stripes. Uh, the governor really does seem to want Kelly Loeffler. Now, here's the question. He, he wants to create distance between himself and the president. This is one way to do it. But he can't afford to completely alienate President Trump. So how does he go to the White House? What does he is he saying because he's, if he's picking Loeffler, he's got to be in conversation, if not with the president himself, with uh, Mick Mulvaney, with other political uh, uh, operatives at the White House saying something so that it doesn't feel to the White House like he is just out and out picking a war. Well, you know, if you actually uh, look at his gubernatorial Facebook page, not Governor Brian Kemp, but Brian Kemp, you see that the camp, uh, they're actually running ads about impeachment and supporting President Trump. So they're putting some money behind that there. So you still have in people's Facebook news feeds uh, this messaging about supporting the president. But, I mean, one thing to think about, if Doug Collins isn't selected, he's still the ranking member on the Judiciary Committee, and he's still in that impeachment process. And so I would imagine the argument would be made as now you have not one hardworking Georgian helping defend you, you have two. I, I would, I would, I would, and I don't want this to be taken quite the wrong way, but maybe it should. Uh, I think <laughs> what, what Governor Kemp should be telling Trump is, I need to do you a favor here, though. Oh, that's a really interesting way of putting it. That this is, this is we're doing this for yeah. your good. Yeah, right. Hey, Martha, one last thing before we uh, take a break and move on to other uh, parts of the conversation. Andre Gillespie, a frequent panelist on this show, has said repeatedly, um, and and she would say this to you and and would probably welcome your response. She said, just because you pick a woman candidate doesn't mean that other women are going to embrace her. Her. They're going to they're going to ch- make their choices on the basis of how a candidate deals with the issues. Respond to that. No, I, I tend to agree with her because 55 percent of the electorate is women. And as Amy Klobuchar said last week, you know, we don't play a game saying name the woman president. OK, so uh, women don't necessarily vote for women, but at the same time, they need to be at the table. And, you know, I'm doing my research on women's electoral success in my graduate degree that I'm working on, and it's important that we're at the table. And a woman like Kelly Loeffler, and again, I'm not supporting Kelly Loeffler at this point, but I'm saying if, if that's who we're talking about, public school education, came up through the ranks, self-made woman, very much like David Perdue, but a a female version of David Perdue. So, um, you know, I just think that, yeah, she has a legitimate point there, but at the same time, uh, I hope nobody will vote for anybody just because they're black or they're a woman or they're Hispanic or whatever. We still need to have those people at the table because it is my firm belief as a Republican that our values and the things we fight for are good for everyone. And that needs to be reflected in our candidates. Thank you. All right. Just to put a period on this part of the conversation, Jim, um, everything that I'm hearing, I had a couple conversations with people in the governor's office today, uh, is that they want to do this sooner rather than later. They really can't afford to let too much time go by because the longer the conservatives out there are pushing Doug Collins, uh, the more trouble it gives them. And you've got to think that they're going to want to do this 
before Thanksgiving, perhaps. Yeah, so maybe but, it's coming soon. Right. Well, the, the, the problem is that uh, kind of uh, uh, people are the, – the, the tryptophan uh, kind of effect is already happening. I mean, people, <laughs> people, people are already shutting down it's for true. the Thanksgiving. Yeah. Thanksgiving. Right. That's and true. and if, that's, if that's the case, then your, 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 your best window may be Monday, uh, next Monday. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll watch this and see how it unfolds. Uh, in the meantime, let's take a break right now, come back a lot more – to talk about on Political Rewind, this pre-Thanksgiving edition of Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Giving Tuesday is coming up. It's a day when people all over the world come together to give back. I'm David Green. You listen to Public Radio for reporting that you trust, journalism that is available to everyone in your community. And when you donate to this station on Giving Tuesday, you can be proud knowing you're supporting a service that makes a difference. Donate online at gpb.org, or you can call 800-222-4788. And above all, thanks a lot. In 1987, federal agents surrounded a trailer park in Missouri. Their target, the leader of a white supremacist militia. I have eight teams of freedom fighters prepared to start a race war. When agents arrested him, they found a massive arsenal. C4 plastic explosives, hand grenades, thousands of rounds of ammunition. Years after his release, he killed three people. How he slipped through the cracks this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us for All Things Considered this afternoon from 4 to 7 right here on GPB. Tom Faust just came into the studio to tell me that at the start of today's radio show, we were apparently having some problems that many of you who are listening on the radio right now... Uh, could kind of hear us, but the audio wasn't great. Uh, it is fixed now, we believe. And uh, he wanted me to make sure I remind you all, and I don't do this often enough anyway, that if you want to hear the show from the start, you can listen to the entire thing. There's a link on our Twitter page, Politics GPB. You can go to uh, Tom Facebook Live. will have good audio. You can listen, watch the show on Facebook Live later. Uh, you can subscribe to our podcast, the Political Rewind podcast. So even with technical problems, there are many ways to listen to Political Rewind and catch up on what maybe you missed at the top of the show, which uh, was a pretty important conversation, I think. Uh, one other quick uh, program note while we're doing that. Um, the Political Rewind family is going to take a few days off to uh, rest up because we all know how busy we're going to be as the rest of this year unfolds and going into next year. So um, we're tomorrow uh, going to have a show, a conversation that I recorded with Rick Atkinson. He is a three-time Pulitzer Prize-winning historical writer, uh, former newspaper guy. His new book is the first of a three-volume set on the Revolutionary War, Mm -hmm. and we talk about how the war began and unfolded. Rick is a great conversationalist who you would think everything you needed to know about the Revolutionary War has already been uh, written. Uh, He brings all sorts of new and interesting perspectives to bear. So that's tomorrow. Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, we're going to take the day off. There's those days off. We're going to have special programming for you. And uh, uh, we'll be back on Monday with another live show. Galloway, you get to rest uh, up, well, too, that yeah, means. Yeah, well, I thought I thought you and I might come on and, and, and help people uh, with uh, cooking their turkey. <laughs> but then I find out that that slot's already taken. <laughs> I'm afraid, yeah, that's probably already taken. Uh, you know, Jim, let me start. There's an interesting little story that uh, there's not a whole lot we can do with it, but enough that it's, uh, I think, worth uh, talking about for a while. So apparently over the weekend, Joe Biden uh, spoke at an event somewhere in Iowa, uh, made comments about who his vice presidential running mates might be. The Des Moines Register picked the story up. You guys in uh, on the Political Insider blog picked it up. And although he didn't use their names... He made it clear that he thought that either Stacey Abrams, who we hear all the time, could be a running mate, or Sally Yates 
could be his one. Though they're in the running for this, and there were and there were a couple other U.S. Sen, uh, yeah. uh, other individuals named. Yeah, uh, but we don't care about them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but there, there are possibilities, and 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 more to the point, they probably would be more willing to do that. Uh, I mean, I mean, Stacey Abrams has has emphasized that look, she is she is she's got her eye on the the 2022 gubernatorial mm-hmm. race. And as you and I have talked many, many a time, Sally Yates has shown no appetite at all for for electoral politics. Right. So let me go back. I mean, yes, we know that Abrams has th- talked. We think Abrams wants to run for governor. But she said over and over again all over the country that she's open to being considered. Of course. As a running so, am I, so am I. <laughs> me so, too. Wait, are you, wait, before we go on, are you saying I, am, I can't imagine why you'd be interested in that. But in any case. No, no, no I'm, I'm saying, look, look. Look, she is she is very in, in in her real tight organization. She's very Georgia centric. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has put in a lot. She's made a huge investment through Fair Fight Action in, into 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 Georgia issues. Uh, she she is there are you know there there are legislative types and there are executive types. Yeah, that's in, right. In, in in politics, she's an executive. She type. is an executive. And, type. and if she's she's already said she doesn't want to run for U.S. Senate. Well, what's the what's the job of the vice president right. to preside over the U.S. So, Senate? Joel, so the 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 Sally Yates uh, talk uh, by by the first time anybody, to the best of my knowledge, has mentioned her at all. Galloway's right. We've known Sally Yates mm-hmm. for many, many years. You may have, too. And, she, you know, despite all the people who wanted to get her into electoral politics back when she was fired by the president as acting attorney general, we knew she didn't want to do that. That's just not who she is. But it's interesting to think about why Biden might be interested in her. She helps him tell the story of Trump, what he would say is Trump administration corruption. I would say this. I think if I'm Sally Yates, I'm in a good spot. And I think I think she she has served us, as the American public, well um, in her capacity with the Justice Department. I think she's enjoying um, life in the private sector now. But I think it speaks to a much larger issue, Bill, that if you know that the top three candidates are older white candidates, and I think they realize they need to diversify their ticket. So that's really what we're talking about here. How do I create uh, enough appeal? And how do I reach those, those, uh, that part of the electorate where maybe I can't directly connect with them, but my, the person with me, like a Julian Castro or a Stacey Abrams or somebody else, who can, who can resonate profoundly with this group, especially the emerging young people, because I might not have the capacity to do it, but they can do it as my surrogate and on the ticket. So I think that's really what we're talking about here, creating a diverse uh, um, um, platform, a diverse uh, a tandem on the Democratic Party that could reach the multitude of the electorate. Stephen, jump in, and then we'll get uh, uh, Martha involved here. Well, you know, uh, you know, Stacey Abrams was in the debate media spin room uh, before while you were on the air and um, while others were on the air, and the crowd that she got of people wanting to ask her questions and take photos and things like that were honestly larger than some of the presidential yeah. candidates that stayed <laughs> after the debate yeah. because she has that kind of X factor and that charisma and personality and speaks the language that activates so many people. And so whether Joe Biden actually intends to use her or not, uh, him mentioning her name shows that at least he's politically savvy enough to recognize that she's somebody who could benefit him more than the other way around. Martha? Right. Well, I mean, think to Joel's point that he made on the last discussion. I don't know if having either one of those is going to make um, a Joe Biden ticket. That's who we're talking about any better. But I do think it's a it, it, the biggest issue is who is at the top of the ticket, okay? And because that's who people ultimately vote for. I don't know if maybe since Kennedy that a vice president actually brought votes in from a from a certain area. So. Um, I, I, you know, if in the in the Clinton Gore time, I think they actually lost Tennessee or something like that. I mean, no, so, no, I don't think in I don't think in in the first in in ninety two. Well, wait, uh, yeah, when Gore, okay. But go I'm ahead. thinking about. But anyway, the point is, I think it's got to be more about what it's bringing to the ticket and 
and how are you going to actually campaign and how will the person at the top of the ticket campaign? I think that's I right. I think that's ultimately it. Uh, just to, just to, I know exactly what you were thinking about. It was, I know. In 2000, when it Gore was, was Gore the presidential candidate, right. he lost Tennessee, which was why Florida became make or break for that's him. That's right. right. You are right. right. Thank and, you. It's okay. Right. Now, I would point out two, two things, two more things about Biden, uh, Biden and, and, and this, this thing over the weekend. Number, number one is both, obviously, both Stacey Abrams and uh, and uh, Sally Yates are are Georgia natives, mm-hmm. and uh, Georgia could become very important on March twenty twenty fourth. Uh, so just just the mere mention is 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 helpful. And then the other two senators that he named were Jean Shaheen and Maggie Hassan, both of New Hampshire. New Hampshire, <laughs> yeah, that's a, a really wonderful. That's right. They may not be that helpful on a general election. Uh, so, so I think those, those mentions were awfully, awfully important, too. Pretty right. smart. All right. So March 24th, uh, Stephen, right now we know that in Iowa and New Hampshire, the polling shows us that uh, white candidates are way out <laughs> in front. You've got Pete Buttigieg, uh, who's really picked up steam in Iowa. Elizabeth Warren has, in most of the polling, ten- seems to be up in New Hampshire. She Obviously, she's a next-door neighbor being Massachusetts senator. But when they came, but then they're going to turn south. We all know this scenario. Suddenly, African American votes are going to matter a great deal, and the candidates who were here last week really went out to pitch themselves to African Americans here in Georgia and by default around the country for the March twenty fourth primary. And you were out there with a lot of them, especially the well, both the days before and after the right. debate. And so uh, the first one that came to town was Pete Buttigieg, and, you know, he was riding that Iowa momentum of uh, the polling there. But he came to Morehouse College, which is a historically black college. He spoke to it was a lot of students and a few community members. And uh, tepid might be one way to describe <laughs> the reception and things there. But there was a Morehouse professor uh, asking him about some of his records and some of his policies, uh, specifically uh, policing and, you know, his uh, snafu where he had a stock image of a black woman and child instead of an actual like person he's met in real life for his new Douglas plan. And so, you know, it kind of set a it kind of set a tone of, you know, he was asked, why would black voters want to vote for you? And basically his answer was, once the white voters vote for me and show that I'm electable, then everyone else will fall in line. Interesting. Uh, Joe, why don't you weigh in on just that uh, uh, first, uh, Pete Buttigieg. Well, let me say this. Uh, as a proud graduate of Morehouse College, 25 years in running. Um, I, uh, Were you wiping a little tear out of your eyes? A little bit. A little bit. I, you know, so. actually, I, was being, I was being nostalgic. I know you asked me about Pete, but Pete, Go Pete, ahead. Pete Judge, but, but I remember in 92 when I was there, um, Bill Clinton came. Yeah, I, was, I remember it. I was yeah. at that event. And they, they gave him a hard time, yeah. a real hard time. Yeah. So uh, let me just say this for the record. Anybody who decides to go to a historic black college university as a presidential candidate, I respect them mightily because it is not easy ground. If you think that you're just going to be welcome, open arms, and not ask the tough questions, you can forget that. They're going to ask the tough questions. They're going to want serious answers. So anyway, I would say with Mayor Pete, he actually did about several attempts to go to Morehouse. And also he went to a barbershop, a local barbershop there. So he really tried to make inroads as best as he can. And I say that um, that's all well and good, but, you know, proof is in the pudding. And I think the African-American voter, um, they want to see something tangible, something real. Every four years, you have people spouting all these phenomenal ideas and all these phenomenal um, policy measures that they're going to introduce. But right now, what people want to see, African-American voters know their power and they want to exercise their power. And if, if people take uh, people don't take that into account, they're going to miss a great opportunity to ensure that they get that vote. Is there anything is there anything that Pete Buttigieg can do as himself individually at this point to to, to make his uh, make make a better case? For me, I would say if I if I was able to speak to him face to face, I would say you're a made you're a mayor of a city. You have executive power. There are things you could be doing now. You don't have to speak in the hypothetical. You can speak in the real. So if you're talking about uh, workforce development, if you're talking about transportation education, if you're talking about affordable housing, if you're talking about entrepreneurship, you can be doing those things in South Bend. You have a predominantly you have a, you have a very large African American population there that you can be working with every day. If you were to do things in your home turf and then say these are examples of what I can do 
on a larger scale, I think that would that would resound uh, mightily with with a lot of people in the African community. But if you just say, well, I'm touting the Douglas plan after Frederick Douglass and saying, I'm going to do all these phenomenal things, but you're not willing to, to actually exercise it with the power that you have, I think that's problematic. Martha, I do think that uh, I, we get it. We know that there, there are poll, there's polls in the in southern states, South Carolina, that show Buttigieg at literally zero uh, percent of the black vote. But the scenario in which he wins Iowa convincingly, I'm not saying that's going to happen, it's one scenario, then he goes to New Hampshire where he's picked up momentum because of a convincing win in Iowa, wins New Hampshire, does that, in your opinion, suddenly give him, coming to South Carolina, a second look by African Americans, particularly if Biden really does poorly in those first two states. I don't know if that scenario really makes sense or not. I don't know that the Biden support is at all soft in that respect. But does it give does it give Buttigieg something to build on? Well, it's pretty uncommon that you have somebody sweep these early primaries, regardless of the party, right? Because they have different needs and different bases right. and one's caucuses and primaries and all that stuff. I, I think um, South Carolina will be kind of the... The, the watershed for Pete Buttigieg if he wins those first two. I think he's got a hard sell in South Carolina. I, I, I think that he's, I think that I remember, you know, y'all are going to laugh when I say this, but I worked for Mike Dukakis back in 1988 <laughs> and he sat in across the table with me and says, why is it that the South, I have a hard time in the South. And I told him at the time, and I'm just some kid, I was 27 years old. I said, you don't come off as very warm. That's probably why I ended up in the basement of the convention. But, but, but I think that's part of it too. He doesn't come off as a very warm person and all the talking about his family and his mother-in-law and all that kind of stuff is not going to make him seem more warm because he's not a warm guy. All right. I've, I've got to take a break. Uh, Tom Faust is pushing me to get it out of the way. Uh, by the way, as I do, I will tell you, Martha, I spent an enormous amount of time traveling around the country with Michael Dukakis in 1988. And I second your emotion about it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back. Wow. There are lots of ways to give back. When I was in high school, I volunteered at my NPR station answering phones during the membership drive. I'm Ari Shapiro, and when I see organizations doing good work in the community, I want to support them. That's why this Giving Tuesday, I'm donating to public radio. And you don't have to wait until then to give back. Here's how to do it right now. Donate online at gpb.org or call 1-800-222-4788. Thanks for making a difference. On the next Fresh Air, college in a maximum security prison. Unlike other schools, it has bars. It has gates that close and open. It has doors that must be locked. The PBS documentary series College Behind Bars tells the moving story of prisoners taking rigorous courses and earning degrees while serving their time. We'll speak with director Lynn Novick and two graduates of the program. Join us. Fresh Air is coming up this afternoon at 3 right here on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. We're talking about Democratic presidential candidates courting the African-American vote when they were in Atlanta around the debate last week. Uh, we know Biden left right after the debate, went to South Carolina, uh, where he certainly was courting African-American votes, uh, Stephen. But uh, Bernie Sanders uh, stayed around. He was here. Cory Booker stayed. Kamala Harris stayed. Uh, and so did Elizabeth Warren. You say Bernie Sanders, after the poor reception Buttigieg got earlier in the week, that Bernie Sanders got a rousing reception at Morehouse. Yeah, I mean, you know, it. it I don't want to say pandering, but it was definitely playing to the crowd. I mean, Bernie Sanders does not typically walk out to a young thug rap song. But, uh, but the crowd that was there at Morehouse was very enthusiastic to hear his message. And he was talking about his uh, college affordability plan with HBCUs and, uh, you know, obviously something well received at an HBCU. And then kind of as the week progressed, there was more energy for these candidates who were hosting events. The final candidate event that we had was Elizabeth Warren. She delivered a speech at Clark Atlanta University on black domestic workers through history and their different powers and things. And I think uh, we have some sad you want to play that? Let's play yeah. that uh, soundbite number six. Black history, American history, teaches us how to confront this moment of challenge. Black history teaches us how to stand up when you're told to sit down. 
Black history teaches us how to speak out when we're told to be silent. Great sound, but she was disrupted by protesters at that event, earlier in that event. It had to be rescued by Ayanna Presley, who was there, to say, hey, please— Thank goodness she had an African American member of Congress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some 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 black charter school enthusiasts. Absolutely. Yeah. I, well, I remember when Hillary Clinton came to Clark Atlanta. We had the the Black Lives Matter came in as well, and you had to have people like Andrew Young and and John Lewis to try to have you know speak right. to them to right. to try to intervene. Right. So I told you that you come to HBCU, it's not going to be. <laughs> uh, but but, but, but uh, to, to Stephen's point on Bernie Sanders, uh, uh, number one, this is. Uh, Bernie's second time around, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, and we do have the killer Mike effect mm-hmm. uh, right. because because he was in, and and I believe his uh, his co chair is Vincent Fort mm-hmm. out of Atlanta. Okay, is he again this yes. time? Yeah. He was yeah. certainly last yeah. time. Oh, that's mm-hmm. interesting. I didn't realize that. But I will say this though: I do appreciate the the acknowledging um, the Atlanta University Center and its importance on a national stage that it is. It is the largest consortium of HBCUs in the United States. From there have emerged great leaders, and I appreciate their willingness to go in, listen, and hopefully learn, and hopefully take back uh, and really understand the importance of HBCUs in not only in our American history, but also in producing uh, phenomenal leaders, thinkers, academics, and business leaders. Yeah, Martha, I heard you want to jump in there. Well, I mean, like. I, I heard you mention Bill Cory Booker in your intro asking Stephen, and of course he didn't come up at all when Stephen was talking about what was going on. And, and you know, Booker to me, and granted, I understand if I like a candidate in a Democratic debate, then they probably don't have a chance, all right, because <laughs> I am I am a conservative, okay? But his message about we've got to stop talking about raising taxes and start talking about developing entrepreneurship, I thought was a good message, but it got no traction. I am so glad you (laughs) brought that up because that was the last thing I wanted to ask Stephen about in terms of that. I I went Thursday morning to Al Sharpton's uh, National Action Network breakfast where I I think where five of the candidates went there. And I had never, you know, it's been a long time since I've been out on the campaign trail. Uh, So I don't see the candidates the way Stephen Fowler does for GPB Radio, the way Greg Bluestein does over at the AJC, the way Galloway does on occasion. I was knocked out by the talk that Cory Booker gave at the National Action Network. Now, that's his crowd. He should do well there. But he is charismatic. He's articulate. He's impassioned. I also went with him. You were at Ebenezer Baptist Church where he was funny and warm and engaging, and his message is moderate. It's one of the great puzzles, I think, of this race, why he has not got a cut on at all. Yeah, and you know that phone bank you were talking about? Yeah. Uh, it was uh, Klobuchar, yeah. Booker, Buttigieg, and Yang that came yeah. to phone bank for Stacey Abrams' group, yeah. Fair Fight. Yeah. Uh, you know, Stacey Abrams keeps popping up in all of this. But, I mean, really, you had, I mean... We had a team of people, the AJC had a team of people all over the area covering all of these, but you have so many candidates and there are only a few big lanes that people are bumped into. I mean, there's one could argue that there's nothing that many of these uh, second or third tier candidates are saying that aren't kind of like what somebody like Warren or Bernie or Biden are saying. And so I think a lot of that gets lost in the noise of the sound bites of the campaign trail. Joe, quick comment about that before we take up our last subject. Why is Cory Booker having so much trouble? That that is a tough call. I mean, I, I'm I'm originally from New York, so I know him uh, when he was mayor of Newark. Um, he has he has the credentials uh, in order to to be a person who can really carry uh, the mantle regarding um, the African American vote and the, and the African American concerns. He has a great story. Um, great, great education, but for some reason he just, just he's just not happening. resonating. He's just mm-hmm. not doing it. And so, it, I, I, you know, there's some there's some political realities that are hard to that you may never get an answer. You for. never understand that. I it, no, I think that's yeah. right. I don't think there is an answer. And unfortunately, Jim, he's right now not likely to make the December debate. Uh, he, uh, he hasn't. He hasn't yet. And what's what's what I find interesting is he's he's all those things. He's he's passionate. He's he's he he's he generates all these 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 great thoughts. But he's also kind of a counterweight to Elizabeth Warren on economic yes, issues. Yes, he is. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that's that's being lost. Yeah. All right. Uh, final subject before we run out of time today. Jim Galloway, you uh, were the first one to bring this to my attention. I thought it was really worth talking about. Uh, now that Michael Bloomberg has jumped into the race, we're uh, oddly enough, instead of being at the point that we should be at where we're winnowing the field, mm-hmm. it's expanding. Um, and you raised the question of what does Lucy McBath do with a Bloomberg candidacy? He poured an enormous amount of money because of his uh, uh, gun. What is it? Um, home hometown safety. I can't. Every remember. town for every gun town safety. for gun safety into her campaign. Does she have some obligation to? Support his campaign. How does she respond to that? That's, do you it, think? It, it's it's a good question that only she can answer. Yes. And 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 uh, we we do have Hardy Davis, the mayor of Augusta, jumping in very quickly to to endorse him. I, I'm not clear on what the connection there there is, but in the sixth, you know, the the thing about Lucy McBath is she's very she's played played it very very close to the vest here, mm-hmm. and and the Republicans are clearing the field for Karen Handel at this point. Uh, in the past, she has made uh, uh, the, the Second Amendment a, 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 a rallying cry. You know, there's a possibility if you if you tie yourself too closely to Bloomberg again, that you know that could that could backfire on you. I'm I'm not sure that that's it's, the case. Yeah. I th- I think we're gonna we're gonna hear a little bit more from McBath. Uh, as she gets more comfortable with with this race that's shaping up, Martha, what do, what, what do you think about that? And and given that the field is being cleared for Karen Handel, I, she's still got a tough fight to try to win that seat away from McBath. Oh, she'll have a tough fight, but of course, as we've said before, your first reelection is always the most difficult. Karen Handel learned that, right? And now Lucy McBath's got to learn it too. But I, I think the tough one is she either, I think Lucy McBath either needs to not get involved in the presidential race at all, and that would probably serve her best yeah. in a primary, or you should support, you should be loyal. You should support the people that support you. Yeah. Yeah. And that means coming out for Bloomberg. So if she can't do that, she ought to stay ne- neutral. Joe? I would say also she needs to lift up the new constituencies that she has formed. Like she's done really good work with veterans, right? So she needs to let people know that my two years here, I've built a coalition of supporters. That way you can move away from the Bloomberg conversation and say I have localized support. I think that's critical. And I think that will hopefully lead to the resources she needs in order to uh, keep the six. Well, you know, I, I think, yeah, Lucy McBath has her hands full uh, trying to fight off Karen Handel in this election. Uh, I think the money that Bloomberg and Bloomberg-affiliated groups have given her would be a rounding error in the grand scheme of Michael Bloomberg's wealth in life. <laughs> so I don't think uh, he's necessarily worried about the return on his investment. And he's spending uh, millions and millions of dollars on his own campaign ads. So I don't think there's necessarily going to be much connection between the two other than from uh, – uh, pro care and handle groups trying to tie the two together. Well, there's that's, that's where it happens. Too. It's not whether Bloomberg wants to continue contributing if she doesn't endorse him. It's the other way. It's how does he impact uh, on her if you're uh, if the Republicans want to go. All right, we are completely out of time uh, for today's political rewind. It's been really. A fun show for me. I hope you've all enjoyed it out there. Again, if you had problems with the beginning of the show, uh, you can uh, just listen to the podcast, go to Facebook Live, go to Twitter, and we have a link there. And we apologize to you that we had some technical issues. This is our brand new studio. We're still working out some of the kinks that we have with the uh, technical side of it. And uh, so we apologize to you again for that. Um, because we're not going to be on the air live again, um, let me wish first to Jim Galloway, my partner on Mondays and Fridays on this show, but also to uh, Joel Alvarado, to Martha Zoller, to Stephen Fowler, and to all of you out in the audience, best wishes for a really wonderful Thanksgiving. I hope it's a great, great day for everybody. And maybe, maybe for just one day, we can all just be a little quiet have our voices lowered and try to treat each other with dignity and respect. And please, please, no political arguing at the dinner table. Do you hear that, my father-in-law? See you all again a week from today.